Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Planet. I'm Robin Williams from uh, ABC Radio National. Now, I need to say a couple of things about what we're talking about because uh, Captain Kirk and Dr. Spock might not necessarily give you a full ambit of what's going on, but um, we shall mention environmental matters and climate change and such like, and let me tell you a couple of things that might mislead you. One of them is that there are so many pronouncements from academic institutions on climate that people like me who do science broadcasting cannot cope and leave them out. For instance, in the last week, the Academy of Science in America, the Royal Society in London, the CSIRO combined with Met Office have presented major statements on how climate is behaving and their concerns. I ignored all that. And the reason is that there's so much coming through. For instance, there's a journal Nature Climate Change, which is dedicated to nothing but papers on the way that climate is being affected by what we do and other matters. And you may be slightly uh, influenced by the title of this, Communicating Climate Change, to infer that what we're going to talk about, although we might touch on it, is the way in which we are required to bring some sort of balance as we are with discussions of gravity or Darwin's theories of evolution to what might be a, a, an intense debate on these matters. To give you an example of the kind of pressures we have, I was in Chicago two weeks ago and I was on a panel at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And also on the panel was the British Minister for Science, they have one, David Willits, <laughs> known as Two Brains, a couple of people from Harvard, one from Stanford, and we, that was broadcast under the auspices of the naked scientist, Chris Smith. It was on the BBC, it was also on Radio National, but um, Chris Smith told me on Friday that after it was broadcast in England, someone said I had planted someone in the audience especially to ask a question about climate change so that I could give my biased left-wing views so that they could be promulgated all over England. And he had two days in which to answer that accusation. Now, this is standard for us, but we're not going to talk about that sort of aspect, but something rather more interesting that concerns you. In other words, how you might be influenced by facts such as those that came out of CSR and the Met Office last week and the Royal Society, and how much you might be interested by feeling angry or feeling insecure or feeling somehow impelled by what you need to do to protect your family. So here we have Tanya Ha, we have Tori Shepherd from Adelaide, and indeed Animal Crab is from Adelaide as well, but uh, spends most of her time in New South Wales. Tanya Ha, who has starred on Catalyst on many an occasion, is responsible for the title about Captain Kirk and Dr. Spock. So to start off, what had you in mind? <laughs> well, Star Trek for one thing. You know, nothing like a bit of Star Trek to get attention. And that kind of leads into the idea of Captain Kirk and Dr. Spock, is that the people we're trying to communicate with in the environment movement are people. 
they really like stories. And to give you a little bit of my history, yes, I've been a reporter for Catalyst, but that was kind of my, you know, my dabble in journalism. I'm really a freelance mad greenie. And I've specialised in trying to communicate the need for behaviour change and the need for stronger policy through most of my career. And after many years of doing that, it's occurred to me that these messages aren't getting through. So I did what you do when you're a nerd. I went back to university and did a master's and tried to work out, you know, what are we getting wrong in our messaging? And this idea comes from psychology. There's a theory called the, the rational experiential self or dual process models. And the basic idea is that we've got two quite different ways of processing information that helps us know what to do about it. Now, the experiential self, another name for it's kind of like the reptile brain, that acts really quickly. So if you see a snake, you run. If you see a problem, you do something really quickly about it. The rational self takes the information and thinks about it, makes decisions, gathers other evidence. It might think, you know, hmm, today's a really hot day in March. You know, we had a few hot days in March last year. Oh, I wonder if this is a trend. That's the rational self that's talking there, not the experiential self. The trouble is, is that it takes time to think through these things and not that many people are good at that. Now, a nice quick way of describing the differences between that experiential kind of thinking is to say Captain Kirk. You know, he's someone who, he'll pull out a gun and shoot the bad guy really quickly because he relies on his gut instinct. Some people, you know, who would call that feminine intuition if it was a woman, men prefer guts to feminine intuition or emotions. But then there's also Dr. Spock, who he takes the information, he's the science brain, and you're kind of glad that he's there on the Starship Enterprise because everyone knows that he's the smart one. But at the end of the day, who is captain of the Starship Enterprise? It's Captain Kirk. And really that's kind of the harsh reality for humanity is that we tend to be more experiential than rational. This idea that humans are rational and that we will do the best thing for us, we know more than ever about our health, yet in Australia, we're more obese than we've ever been. We know more about climate and environment and yet we've seen more environmental degradation than we have. So we don't, we don't necessarily need information to act well. Some of you might have been here yesterday and you heard from, um, from Simon Holmes Court with anyone here for yesterday's talk. Wind turbine syndrome, to counter that, they put out a really good campaign called Act on Facts. But my gun instinct, my concern is that humans don't always act on facts. We respond to stories, we're emotional. And another you know, alternative title we've seen for this talk is about you know, the media and the merchants of doubt. The thing that I want to put forward to you guys and that I hope we'll discuss a bit today is that people who have a vested interest in denying climate change are better at that communication than you know, a freelance mad greenie like myself. They appeal to that experiential self. Instead of talking about climate change information and statistics and numbers and graphs, I mean, you can't hug a graph. You know, they present you with, here's a story of this family from Elizabeth who, what would they do with the $500 that should be in their pocket because of carbon tax? The merchant doubts are better at appealing to our experiential emotional selves than we are in more scientific circles. And one thing that they're very good at doing is using the media to communicate that, and our politicians are very good at that too. So is that a, it in a nutshell? Have I used up my seven Indeed, minutes? Indeed, <laughs> you certainly have. But are you really expecting the CSIRO and the Met Office <laughs> to appeal to the emotions? Because I can't think of anyone in those places who will respond in the same way as the other guys do? 
Well, funny you should mention CSIRO because I do happen to know that they have some research in Queensland that is looking at planning for peanut farmers. And they also do some social research. So, so they have some information. They know that there are farmers who are attached to their land in Queensland. Generation after generation has grown peanuts and they have to move because the rainfall patterns are changing. Now that is an example of the real effects of climate change on real people. There's a story that could be told there. CSIRO aren't necessarily the storytellers, but they've got information that they can take to storytellers and that's the kind of thing that's going to make climate change more real and digestible and understandable. And in this particular case to a group, you know, farming communities, which sometimes can be, you know, more on the side of climate change sceptics than on people who are wanting to do something about it. Tori Shepherd, the uh, tension there between giving the correct information and maybe manipulating emotion, maybe telling a good story. Is that kind of tension you recognise? Well, that's the kind of tension that makes for a good a good yarn and I mean at the end of the day that's what we're in the business of and sometimes you know the next big report that comes out that shows again what we all know about climate change you know you try and pitch that up against Kim Kardashian and you know all the, all the pop culture crap that does loads of hits online which is you know always a big problem because we have editors who can say well you know you can write that boring climate change report that says what we already knew no one's going to click on that they're going to go and have a look at Kim Kardashian's ass because, you know, that's, that's what people do that's when they go to the internet. <laughs> so we do need to learn how to tell these stories better and I completely agree with talking about the emotional side of things. Um, part of the problem is that with the internet and, you know, I'm sure everyone knows about the issues that newspapers are running into, people go online to this echo chamber and look for people they already agree with. So I write opinion columns and, you know, I thoroughly enjoy it and, you know, I laugh at my own jokes, it's great fun. <laughs> but the only people reading it and engaging with it are other people who already agree with me or who completely disagree and then it very quickly devolves into the same conversation that we've already heard a thousand times. So the next question then is, how do you actually change somebody's mind? You know, I get hundreds of handwritten letters that, when they're not calling me butchhead barjas, are just saying, you know, how <laughs> um, either the evil hate media or the evil love media or whatever else I am. I've never had a letter that said, wow, you made me think about that in a fresh light and I've changed my mind and I now agree that climate change is happening. And, you know, that day, that would be better than a bloody Walkley. I tell you what, if you could actually convince someone to look at the science, to be rational about things, to move beyond the reptile brain, to move beyond this sort of... Uh, beat up about the cost of living and so on and actually go, you're right, we do need to do something. And I would, I would love to learn how to do that and I think then I would consider myself a good storyteller. Would you? You don't feel pressures from, dare I say, upstairs to make you report in a certain way? Re maybe appeal more to the emotional side rather than the rational side? <sighs> no, I don't ever feel pressures from upstairs, but I, you know, maybe, maybe they need the token lefty commie. <laughs> the paper to, to keep that, that side of the readership. You're a token <laughs> righty today. Oh, I know. It's, it's, hard being a, it's hard being a lefty called Tory. Um, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I, never, I never get the pressures. I don't know how other newspapers operate, but that's, that's one of the questions that you get quite a lot. And I think there are big issues with the way that climate change is reported in the media. But then I also, you know, you always get the brick, brick batch. You never get the bouquets when it comes to reporting climate change. And part of that is just less conspiracy and more day-to-day -day newspaper, got to grab attention, got to be new, got to be fresh. And sometimes those big long-term issues, I guess, go to the back boiler a little bit. 
Sure. Annabel Crabb, uh, here is a problem that most of us would regard, not because we're group thinking, but because we read the scientific press and have done for some decades, as a clear and obvious problem. Now, I have this wild adolescent imagination that Where says... Where is this going? <laughs> that when you take our top politicians, be they in the state or be they in Canberra, they get clever people who understand exactly what's going on, briefing them and saying, yes, there is a problem, we have to face it, we have approximately five to ten years, this is the risk, we must behave accordingly, we must bring the public alongside because it's going to happen, this is, you know, the, the physics is not left-wing or right-wing, it's kind of nature. So it's out there and we can't duck it. Am I living in a false paradise? I love the way you think. <laughs> um, one of the funniest uh, remarks I ever heard Malcolm Turnbull make was uh, when I was on a panel with him at a, uh, I think it was a writers' festival or something with um, Laurie Oakes, Malcolm Turnbull, and uh, myself. And we weren't talking about climate; we were talking about something or other. And Laurie said that one of the most depressing things he'd ever heard in politics was um, Tony Abbott saying that he didn't think. Um, he said apparently at one point to Laurie that he didn't think that um, politicians should be held responsible for things that happen outside their own lifespans. And, um, and um, Malcolm, <laughs> Malcolm, who was, um, you know, to be typical Malcolm in that he was sort of interacting with this panel whilst also interacting with two devices on his desk in front of him. He was reading an essay on Roman I've architecture. I've seen that, yeah. I know that because I was looking over his shoulder going, you are hilarious. Um, so he's going, mmm, Doric columns, mmm. And anyway, so he was sort of, I thought he wasn't really listening to Laurie, but he was because he heard the comment and then he said, mmm, he is incredibly fit though, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Which was the best. Malcolm is very, very funny. Anyway, it was, it was a good moment. But... Um, you know, there's a big question. Um, should politicians be responsible for what happens outside their own lifespans, outside their own political lifespans, which is a shorter time? In other words, should they lead? Well, this is the thing. Now, what you are saying is that you're assuming, and this is a good, reasonable and touching supposition, you suppose that politicians work and make decisions like Dr Spock. And, you know, a lot of the time that does happen. You know, there are there's a boundless and valuable public resource in the public sector that provides methodical information, research, advice. There's good advice coming from all over the place. And then you've got a group of people who are making decisions who are influenced not only by that advice but by other things, including uh, senses of their own political mortality. And this is not just a kind of egotistic adventure that they're on necessarily. On, sometimes you can only do good things or make big changes if you can survive long enough to make them, right? So that is a necessary part of the equation and not just a megalomaniac's um, indulgence, although sometimes there's an element of that too, right? So I think you've got most political decision makers um, are hugely conscious of the feasibility of making difficult decisions. And what can possibly be more difficult than saying to a population, hey, I'm asking you to accept short-term hardship on my um, degree of ability to, to convince you that there will be a long-term gain. That is the absolute 
beating heart of advocacy and that should be a, a politician's skill, right? But it's interfered with by a whole lot of other stuff. And, you know, the, the changes in the media are a massive part of this. Because yeah, well, I can't help noticing that both Kevin Rudd and Barack Obama in the beginning said this is an urgent problem sure. on which we must act. Well, have a, look at the, have a look at the history of where politicians in Australia have been on climate change. So... In 1997, Robert Hill, who was then the Environment Minister, went off to Kyoto and negotiated what the Howard government at the time trumpeted as an incredible deal for Australia. I mean, we were really um, able to pollute a lot more extensively than you know, all of the other putative signatory nations. So, I mean, I don't think I'm over-egging the pudding to say that Robert Hill was born home on the shoulders of his cabinet colleagues. You know, we've got this incredible deal. Where do we sign? And then, of course, Kyoto wasn't signed, you know, and it kind of went off the boil and off the boil and off the boil. Um, and then um, it kind of left the agenda for that government and then became an agenda item again towards 2007 when there was a, an incredible kind of business and popular demand that something be done, which I think was entirely yeah. related to the drought, but, you know, that's just my pop psychology analysis. And then you had both parties in 2007 going to the electorate in the 2007 campaign with a carbon um, trading scheme on offer. And then the coalition post-Howard all fell into a bit of a worried little clump and argued about it and then burned through Brendan Nelson and then installed Malcolm Turnbull who was on the point of signing an agreement for Rudd's emissions trading scheme and then that was the close that Australia, closest that Australian politics got to a trading scheme and then it all blew apart and it's the twain have never met since. So, you know, both sides of politics, I think, um, and you are all, of course, exhaustively aware of the backwards and forwards within the Labor Party on this issue. Um, both sides of politics have kind of changed their minds um, to a certain degree on this issue and I think that um, that is a confusing thing. Yeah. Um, it, it interferes with our notion of what, you know, political leadership is all about. And the last thing I'll say, which is about the communications revolution, is that whereas the old pattern for communications for um, any kind of policy reform was, you know, politician decides what to do, media reports that, people pick up the paper and say, gracious me, I like that, I'll vote for that person again, or I don't like it, I'll remember that at the next election. I mean, that was kind of the simplified model. And now that we are capable of these miraculous degrees of multi-directional communication, we're all shouting at each other and we're all freaking each other out big time. I mean, you know, now that we can discover to pinpoint detail what individuals think and how they respond, now that we know that they would often rather read, and I'm sorry this is true, a Kim Kardashian ass story than Tory's very, very thoughtful column about climate change, mm. I mean, that panics an already panicked media sector, which is wondering how it's going to survive. It panics politicians who go, shit, maybe nobody cares about this and I thought that they did. I mean, there's a reason why politicians are hugely influenced by focus groups, which is where they get 12 people who have declared that they know nothing and don't care about what happens, um, to ask what they should do now. I mean, that's a very odd sort of thing, uh, place for us to be in, but that's nevertheless where we are. And it's because of our ability now to eavesdrop on the secret and honest thoughts um, of people that we're trying to influence. Uh, it's got us into a sort of multi-directional tangle, I think. Yeah, so it works. That's the problem. The short-term political strategy for scaring the crap out of people with the, you know, this is going to cost you 500 bucks, so you can either do something about, you know, climate change, you can either have this long-term focus or, you know, 
and, and suffer $500 and people take that short-term fix. It, it works. So we can blame the politicians all we like, but in the end, we voted them in. That's what we chose. And how much of these... Sorry, probably not we in this tent <laughs> right here, but, you know, Australia as a nation. How much of these questions play a part in the South Australian election? I haven't seen very much long-term talking in the South Australian election campaign at all. I think it's been one of the least interesting campaigns that we've ever seen. Even There've though been it's very been 45 degrees, 45 degrees, 47 degrees. Exactly. Uh, people are too scared to touch it now. I mean, what Tony Abbott has done has been so devastating, had such devastating cut through talking about the carbon tax that he has helped throw doubt on the entire notion of climate change. And I think politicians are very easily spooked. And so they then start to steer clear of it altogether. Tanya, is, would the new media have a different kind of impact now we're living in a Oh, definitely. And it could be for better or worse. And um, this is like a me being a freelance mad greenie and a bit of a dilettante. I've sort of headed back to No, you're not. You're a very focused scientific oh, okay, yes. person. Strategic, yes. devil in areas strategically. Uh, I did some social research looking at mothers because one thing we've found is with a lot of the environmentally friendly behaviours we want people to take up, a lot of them are habitual. And when you have something that interrupts habit, it's actually the prime time to create new habits. So I was researching the transition to motherhood to see whether that was a good opportunity because I thought, well, when women have this reputation of becoming greener when they have kids, is it because they're thinking about the future of the planet? Maybe they've got more of a connection to health. And so that's what I researched last year. And the thing that I found fascinating as a side, like it was one of those unexpected outcomes that comes up when you're doing research, was what I found was the sources of information that new mothers are using, they're increasingly empowered to seek out their own experts, their own information online. And so they'll go, if they've got a problem in the middle of the night, the baby's not settling and this, that and the other thing, they'll go and post a question on Facebook and get an answer straight away rather than waiting until the next maternal and child health appointment. And so that's something that I actually don't think government has come to terms with yet. I mean, it's another thing that Tory's written about is the vaccination debate. A lot of the information that has been passed between ordinary people is being passed via Facebook and completely bypassing traditional media. And that could be a force for good, could be a force for bad. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested now in looking at new media and seeing, okay, how could that be used by, you know, to help us with our climate change challenges? Well, people talk a lot about the democratisation of knowledge that you get on the internet, which is basically that there's a lot of people who go, well, it's been published, so therefore this blog by Joe Smith is of equal value to, you know, this blog by world-renowned scientists, such and such. And so they place an equal value on whatever information they come across online. And for, I mean, the vaccinate, this is a bit of a tangent, but the vaccination argument, um, the, the situation with vaccinations and people believing that it causes autism is an excellent example of how really good science can get so easily subverted by the emotional argument, by worried parents going online and saying, you know, my kid has autism, I don't know what to do, and very quickly finding, well, it was probably the vaccination, now I've got something to blame and so on and so forth. And before you know it, the science is, is out the window. And part of that is, I think, you know, a lack of science literacy from, from school. But also people have just lost their bullshit detectors. They really swim around on the internet. They read all kinds of crap. And they, so many people don't have the ability to tell fact from fiction anymore. And what can we do about that? Well, As journalists, as public communicators? 
Certainly, certainly education. We all know that science has gone a little bit off the boil, considering we don't have a science minister anymore. Um, education is part of it, but for the media, it is again communicating these, communicating the science in a way that is compelling, in a way that hits both the rational and the emotional touch points. I think, and as I said, I, I don't think we've mastered that yet at all. Annabelle, what do we do? Well, I, you know. I think it's really easy to sort of worry about what happens to people when they, um, you know, congregate online. I mean, what this revolution has done is sort of supercharge the elements of human behaviour, right? Because we are now getting a strong set of patterns about what people do. People do get freaked out about things. People do look for reasons that aren't necessarily true. People are incredibly subjective in the way that they approach things that happen around them, things that happen over there. They, of course, believe the guy who runs their corner shop more than they would believe their local MP. I mean, wouldn't you? I would. It's, you know, <laughs> completely natural human experience, right? And what the internet does is give everybody who thinks a certain crazy thing an ability to get together and talk about it and to reinforce each other, which is exactly what happens in a village, but it's just that the village is massively bigger. So what's the solution to that? Well, uh, innovation is the solution to that, like it's the, you know, the solution to just about every problem. It is um, getting to be really good at communicating, getting to be really good at working out how to capture attention and how to deliver accurate information Okay, let at me tell you why time. that's a problem, why it's difficult, and Dr Spock comes in here. The scientists, people on campuses, are called the elite. The elite is a pejorative term. It's a... It's a a nasty word now. It doesn't mean an excellent, informed person. It means a person who is disconnected from you, the ordinary person who has to work in Struggle Street, usually. And we're being told by people from a certain area that the scientists are no longer to be trusted because they have a particular angle. And some of them, maybe in climate, are all after grants. Mm -hmm. So there's more grants in. Telling every getting people climate shits. change gravy train exactly. <laughs> you know, have you come across it? No. <laughs> I, I reckon you, I, I reckon there'd be a lot of money if you could prove that climate change was bunkum. I think there'd be I think there'd be a Nobel Prize in that, and I think there'd be a lot of money. But they still haven't managed to do Several it. Several so. Nobel prizes, yeah. Annabelle, where does this elite stuff come from that says you are being alienated? You are being uh, lectured by people who've got a special kind of angle, who are disconnected from your life. This is a, this is kind of a, a a battle of ideas, isn't it? I mean, you know, there's a there's a PR campaign going on, you know, um, every day, um, and I guess that if you feel you're being portrayed in an um, unfortunate way or an unfair way, then the only way to respond to that is to demonstrate that it's not true every day, and I think that. <laughs> It's difficult to expect scientists to be PR experts. It is because, you know, if you spend... Especially when they're not allowed to be. Mm. Well, there are plenty of people who are good at it. I think you're very good at it. I think that there are um, uh, a lot of exciting science communicators who are alive to this situation. I think it's got to be... I mean, there's got to be an organised sort of... Um, and structured plan of communication, I suppose. You can't, you know, expect people whose entire responsibility it is to, to do the scientific work 
to also moonlight as talk show guests or whatever. I mean, there are some that are fabulously able to do that and they're great, but I mean, in the, um, uh, in the absence of that as a solution, then there has to be a kind of a, a communication structure, I suppose. Yeah. And in a, in a practical sense, there are a lot of scientists who aren't willing to talk to the media mm -hmm. and partly that's their own internal PR setups. But you will, you know, you'll ring people and say, I'm doing a story on climate change or on vaccination or on, you know, fluoride in the water and how it's controlling our brains, what it, whatever it is. And they don't want a bar of it because sometimes they feel that they're legitimising um, their, their opposition in a sense. And so they, uh, they, they give up that space, that right of reply. So they won't, you know, they won't go on today tonight because that's not such good brand, such a good brand look for them. Um, and it, that comes back to communication again. I don't oh, yeah. want to get yelled at on Alan Jones is the other reason. Like, some of them, they're really... Well, who would true, want to get yeah. yelled at by Alan Jones? I think they're horrible, horrible situation. It's a rite of passage, <laughs> I hear. There's one example that gives me great cause for hope that I think is delightful, is, is the idea of citizen science. And I'll tell you a little bit about two things, because it is one area that Adelaide is actually really good at. But the example I have, I'm sorry, is from Tasmania. Um, there's a program called REDMAP. And this started from the UTAS and the marine and fisheries people there, and their research found that among um, commercial fishers, that around about 80% was the combined total who were either skeptical about, like out and out believe that climate change wasn't happening, or were undecided, not too sure. So, but broadly, 80% didn't want to think or talk about climate change. Um, yet, what she found really unusual was that if she said, well, have, have you seen any of this particular species that's known as a warmer water fish? Have you noticed that off the shoreline of Tasmania? Like, oh, yeah, couldn't shut them up. These, these commercial fishers were talking about it till the cows came home. They had seen the evidence of warming oceans but hadn't realised it. And so um, Greta's the researcher. She set up REDMAP, which was a, what is it? It's a, I can't remember the app the acronym, but it's something like regional environmental distribution mapping. But anyway, the idea was to map species, all sightings, and it invited recreational and commercial fishers and scuba divers to be citizen scientists. And take photographs take and photographs, send them in. Send them in, and then get these markings. So they're helping the scientists, but at the same time, what they found was that citizen scientists actually saw, met or interacted with, even if it's over the internet, with scientists for probably the first time in their lives and got an insight and a trust in the scientific process. Plus the other bonus of this one was that the story, and that's the hard thing about climate change in the media, is you're telling the same story, it's gradually unfolding, yeah, the climate's warming, it's kind of boring day after day. But with REDMAP, each sighting was a new photograph, a new thing, like, oh, oh, here's a whale shark down the WA coast. It's never, it's, it's 200 kilometres further south than it's ever been sighted before. There's the new story, there's the newsworthiness, but the underlying message is the climate's changing, it's affecting marine life. And I'm starting to see some of those citizen science type projects happening in farming communities, agricultural research, and that I've, I've got hope for that. It's an innovation that might help overcome some of those It's revolutionary elitism. and it's happening like crazy, as we mentioned yesterday. Do you want to say something, Glenn, about that? Oh, sorry, red did, did I have my I want to say something face on? <laughs> um, that, that is an excellent example, and you're right about the newsworthiness. Um, the question is, how do we do that in Adelaide, everywhere that we go? Um, and again, the scientists, if they're not talking to us, sometimes I'll read 
you know, a, a science journal, look at it, look at some research someone has done and gone, that would have been a cracker yarn, but now it's out there, it's been discussed, it's old news, and that is just, you know, the, the nature of a daily newspaper. So, again, to have a place where the scientists could come together and talk more freely with the journalists, and here in Adelaide we have the Old Science Media Centre who do a great job of bring, bringing scientists and journalists together, but it needs to be broader than that, and it needs to be something that starts monopolising that online space to rebut and debunk wherever bad science is being talked about. Yes, the Science Media Centre, by the way, I d declare an interest, I'm Deputy Chair, and it's been based in Adelaide since the beginning for about eight years, and when something breaks, if there's a plane crash, if there's a volcanic eruption or something like that, they then have two or three scientists responding to it, and this is for the mainstream media mainly, who need to react very, very quickly, and they can use those quotations or they can follow up with the scientists or ask advice as to which other scientists there might be, and very, very quickly respond to what is a breaking story, not necessarily for science journalists, although plenty of us make use of it as well. Partly, really, if you've got a climate change statement, like two weeks ago, Matt England accounted for the fact that there'd been a pause, supposedly, in the rise of temperatures, and he published a paper in one of the journals about, in fact, it was in Nature, about the fact it was the wind driving the heat, if you like, into the Pacific under the ocean. And this heat is likely to come up again. So, okay, there might have been a pause, but it hasn't gone away. So you've got a number of stories coming out constantly. And from here in Adelaide and around the world in eight different centers, the science media centers are responding to those sorts of things. And a, a journalist can check out very, very quickly whether a story is a beat-up, whether it's got legs, or what to do about it next without telling them what to do. And I think it's very useful. Don't and you? we get bloody good quotes. And I mean, that's, that's the other side of thing. Again, when you're telling a story, quite often you'll, you, you can interview the, the top expert on this and they're talking to you in jargon that not only do you not understand, but you, you, your readers have absolutely no chance of understanding. <laughs> and I think you know, the media probably cops a lot of flack for dumbing things down. But the fact is we need to interpret these things for an not put off an audience, but interpret things properly for an audience. And that means vibrant quotes. It means, you know, pictures of fish. <laughs> you know, one thing that I think is interesting about that is, like, the, the Oz Science Media Centre has been great. And one thing that I would love to do with budget for them, if it ever came up, we'll chat to you about it later, one of those things, is that I'd, I'd like to see us take science journalism outside science and I think this is where we have a frustration of seeing the same Ian Plymer and Bob Carter and the, the usual suspects when you're having a scientist put up against a climate scientist, that idea that for balance we have to tell both sides of the story. But the thing that, like I feel the public has been given a disservice here because often in climate and environmental stories, it's not really both sides of the story. I'd like to see all sides of the story told because there's a richness in what's happening in climate change. It's not just, here's this thing happening here in science, it's also, what are the consequences socially? What are the consequences economically for farming communities? And within there, if journalists need more than one opinion and they want someone other than the scientist, I think they could go to a richer depth of people, you know, talking heads, other than, oh, let's go to the usual suspect skeptic and, and deliver the, the counter view, however fringe it is. Questions, right. Good afternoon. Um, thinking about um, the behavioural change aspect and that we are responsible for um, climate change outside of our, um, 
our lifetime. Um, is this a generational um, change that should, and should climate change education be embedded across the national curriculum? Um, and this is, I have to admit, this gives me the irrits because everyone wants to sponsor climate change education and sustainability education in schools and ministers sign off because they get really cute photo opportunities with really cute kids. We don't, ha we don't have the time to wait for the next generation to come through. But, you know, Gen Y, Gen X, that, that voting group, I think, are aware and there's a, there's a bit of that generational tension with baby boomers happening there too. I think there's an element of that there. Um, but one thing that I will mention, because it comes down to that behaviour change question of how do we get from information, from knowing these things to actually doing something about it? And I, like, I don't have an answer as to how we go about it, but I think I know what we need and it's, it would be challenging for the media. Um, some of, you know, with psychology, when we hear scary stuff, we then we appraise whether or not it is a real threat. We also appraise our ability to cope with it. And Freud, you know, he, he was famous for all sorts of things, but he outlined uh, a whole heap of denial mechanisms that we go into, basically so we can sleep at night. So if someone has a high appraisal of the threat, this is scary, but a low appraisal of their ability to cope with it, then they look for anything that'll help them to sleep at night. And so I think that that's why we have such an appetite for denialism and people so willing to feed it. One thing that I think we could do in trying to bring about behaviour change is to show people that this is Australia. We, like, we, we're not a low-lying, poor Pacific island. We actually have a whole lot of options. We've got great capacity to adapt and to do something to address climate change and to adapt to the climate change we can't avoid. I think we need to pair the scary stuff with a little bit of encouragement of you know, we can actually do something, partly because we want people to act, but also because we don't want to send them running into the arms of the denialists out of fear. Maybe you could, like, put a price on carbon or something that would encourage, you know, innovation <laughs> and activity. Wouldn't that be like, good? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, in America, Alan Alder is working with scientists to help them better communicate with the media to get their messages across. And he is using his notoriety to actually get the media more involved. Do you think we should actually use media figures like that to actually get these messages across to and get past the deniers? I was actually talking to Alan Alder about that last week, well, two weeks ago in Chicago. Lovely guy. And I have good news for you. We're already doing it. And again, via the Science Media Centre, they have a website which enables people to train, if you like, to deal with pesky journalists. And uh, George Negus, a few other people, even I, have been involved giving various hints about how you can best get your message across. Not manipulate it, but not be flustered by the urgency and, you know, those cameras pointing at you and all those uh, pesky journalists thrusting microphones. But... Um, it's already happening. Anybody else want to add? Look, I think, I think personalities can be really useful. Have a look at Dr. Carl, for example. And before Dr. Carl, we had Carl Sagan, who was an amazing popularizer of science, who made science kind of cool. Um, and, you know, maybe it is a little bit too late to, to get to the next generation in terms of climate change, because we do need to start acting now. But anyone who can coherently put that message across, anyone who can talk about science in a convincing way, first of all, 
they're great for stories, great for yarns, good quotes, all that sort of stuff. And secondly, they are who people are listening to. You know, they're not listening to a lot of the time the the, the esoteric scientists in the in the ivory tower. Not that I'm going to call them a leader or anything like that. <laughs> but if there's someone people can connect to who can put that message out there coherently, it's always a good thing. But Tori, how do you actually, as a viewer, as a listener, tell the difference between someone just picking various bits of evidence out of the sky and someone who is using, if you like, kosher evidence, you know, giving you, giving you a fair idea of what's going on? Because the average listener viewer can't tell the difference between, you know, last year in the paper, blah, someone said something, that, in, in other words, uh, that there's a percentage difference between this and that. How are people going to tell the difference between what is uh, a reasonable statement from a well-known so-called scientist or a bullshit artist? Well, we're back to the bullshit detector, aren't we? And I don't know at what point that happens, whether, you know, taxpayer-funded bullshit detector gets posted out to everyone in Australia, but people need to learn to discern good information from bad information, and that goes for health, it goes for cancer cures, it goes for, you know, a whole... Ev everything in your life you need to work out wh what the good information is and what the bad information is. Um, and the only way I can think of to do it for me is to be writing about it as much as I can and then I run into that brick wall of I'm probably preaching to the converted, I'm not getting to the people who, you know, have, have the crazy ideas in their heads. Well, I tend to, to go and Google the name and check out whether there's a lobby group attached. You know, are they pushing a barrow or do they represent an outfit that actually looks at science in a fairly uh, rigorous way? Another and question. Oh, hi, I'm... I actually work in PR and worked on um, some of the trying to convincing people of the carbon price being a good thing. I just wanted to get your comments on whether or not you think that this push for trying to convince people of the science is the right move or actually switching to thinking about the benefits on individual households of the money saving involved if you actually reduce your carbon emissions or for small businesses. So instead of just trying to come at it from a convincing people to change their minds, actually responding positively to behaviours that could improve their own lifestyles and their own households. Thank you. Um, that's really interesting because the thing about public relations is, you know, you, the public is so diverse. There, I there is no general public. For businesses where there's a business case, and there is, for green buildings, for efficiency, then having good case studies um, championed by people who, you know, walk the talk in the business sector. There's definitely room in there. One thing that I find surprising about green buildings in particular is that they always talk about the money saved from reducing energy costs, but what they also find from research is that productivity improves because they're looking after indoor air quality. And that is tenfold a higher cost, a far higher cost from the people rather than energy efficiency. So the savings to be made by having a green building to look after your staff is is huge and that story needs to be told. With the money saving side and that that's a bit tricky. It's different things for different audiences. Some people are going to resonate, that's going to resonate with them. And but other groups, I mean this is why I was researching mothers and what excites them because I wanted to go for yuppie mothers and what I found was that action framed around child health was what excited them. But the ones that I'm really after, those yuppie mums who have um, really high ecological footprints, they tend to view uh, putting clothes on the line instead of using the clothes dryer. That's a bit povo. Like they tend to view, there's research that shows that 
there's this kind of low status in conservation behaviours, unfortunately, in those groups. So with those kind of groups, we have to tailor it, understand the people we're dealing with first and tailor it to what, what gets their interest. When the carbon tax comes off after July, are they going to get hundreds of dollars back, each household? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> well, no. You see, this is, I mean, electricity pricing is all over the shop. There is so much that contributes to the cost of electricity. Carbon tax is one small one, but mainly it's poles and wires, you know, that sort of thing. So there's, there's still infrastructure costs. Um, our electricity costs are still going to go up. And taking a really big picture, this is one of the things that I keep in the back of my mind about why I support renewables, is that while we've got our energy based on things like natural gas or coal, things that are commodities that can be exported, then we're relying on a commodity price. We're dependent on who's willing to pay what for that power source. So you look at countries like um, Brazil, China, India, all these growing economies, they're increasing their demand for oil, natural gas and coal as well. And what renewables offer us is independence from being taken on that roller coaster of commodity prices. So in the long term, you know, I, I don't really think that our electricity prices are going to go down. Another quick. <coughs> Who's got the mic? The front, yeah. And then you go over there. <laughs> And this question is for Robin Williams. Earlier on at the beginning, yes, you um, you mentioned that there's data, very important data that you didn't um, weren't able to use, and you gave your reasons for that. But don't you think that adds credibility to the deniers forum because you didn't mention it? Well, I I suppose so, but um, there's just an amount that you can put in to two programs a week, and. It was covered on breakfast and it was covered on uh, AM. It may have been covered in other current affairs programs on the ABC. And uh, there was an awful lot in these reports, just to re uh, tell. It was uh, the Royal Society of London, it was the Academy of Science in America, and our own CSIRO in combination with the Met Office. And broadly speaking, they were saying the temperatures had gone up by a substantial amount and that clearly the human fingerprint was there, and that there had not been, according to the person who actually spoke on breakfast about this so-called pause, he said there's no pause. The heat had been absorbed by the ocean, and it was not going to stay there, necessarily. So those were the important points, and they were covered by other programs. But there is a limited number of science programs, and what I find somewhat frustrating is that some of the main things that come up like extreme weather, were covered on Catalyst months ago. All the, the furfies that keep coming up have had major reports in our science programs. And then the, the, the deniers act as if it never happened. It's really quite startling. Yesterday, we had a guy uh, uh, from, I think he's from Western Australia, but he's interested in getting a commercial wind farm going in Hepburn Springs in Victoria. Mm -hmm. And he is a businessman, basically. Mm -hmm. And do you think there really is an opportunity for business to get behind <laughs> these sort of cooperative green-type energies? Well, You're talking about Simon Holmes Accord, who, of course, his family does come from Western Australia. The uh, wind farm is in Victoria. 
again, you run into this trouble of people cherry-picking stories and statistics and information, and you have a big fear out there about wind turbines. And uh, Professor Simon Chapman from University of New South Wales has looked at it and found one of the things that best helps people overcome their fear of wind turbines is actually if they get paid to have one on, the, on their property. <laughs> <laughs> so it's... Yeah. So business absolutely has a role in that. But again, the way that the uh, lobby groups get together whenever there are proposed wind farms cropping up, particularly in, in some of the smaller towns, um, they have to overcome some fairly serious obstacles, again, of bad science. What do you think of the National Health and Medical Research Council who reported uh, a few days ago? Nothing to see here. Yeah, they said there's, uh, there seemed to be no problem. And in fact, I think it was the 20th report of its kind to come out exonerating the wind farms. And yet our peak medical and research council, they have to spend time and money again and again producing these reports that say the same thing. There is no evidence of any ill health effects from wind farms. And so many other health issues that could do with research, including perhaps I might suggest the effects of the ash that's now falling on Morwell from the coal mine <laughs> fires. That's Victorian bias here. But but isn't this what we're talking about, right? You know, people are people and they make up their minds based on all sorts of subjective data. And who is to look at somebody who lives next door to a wind farm who actually does feel awful all the time and say to them, hey, you know, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm from Adelaide and I'm, you know, here to tell you that you it's all in your head. That person actually, like, you're... you're in a Spockian way, providing them with a written report as to why they don't feel dreadful. And that person's response is not ever, ever, ever going to be to say, thanks for helping me out with that. I now realise what a total dick brain I've been. Thank you very much. That person will go on an online forum and say, I can't believe what just happened to me and find 50 other people who say, you are right and that person is a lunatic. And that's effectively what we're talking about here. Okay, Dr yes, Spock, so how do you answer yeah, that Yeah, and that... I'm actually talking to a lot of people who are in that, you know, in the wind industry saying, you've got to just show more compassion. And this is... I mean, you are so right. And this is... What we're referring to here potentially is an example of what's called the nocebo effect. So who's heard of the placebo effect? It's, you know, you expect to feel good, you do feel good. Turns out that if you expect to feel bad if, if it's been spoken to you that oh you know this happens and you get headaches and that sort of we're quite suggestible we can actually feel very real debilitating symptoms of ill health from it being suggested to us because we expect it actually Jonica did a good story on that from Catalyst um, but this could well be what's happening with wind turbine syndrome and this is why all the noise around it why the you know inquiry after inquiry uh, it, it actually makes me angry because if, if I went up to a person who lived near a wind turbine and I punched them, I would rightly be charged with assault. But if you put information out there in the internet that encourages people's fears in a groundless way, fear is great when there's a reason to act on it, but when the fear is groundless, th which may well be the case, I'm not an expert on wind turbines, so putting that disclaimer in there, but if people are creating these bad symptoms, they get off scot-free, and that's... One of the things that I think, I don't know what we do about it, but there's got to be some ethics somewhere. You know, like these, these vested interests that are going out there encouraging people to feel sicker than they might not or to attribute... The other thing that concerns me is, are there other underlying conditions that are causing the symptoms that aren't being treated because they're being told that it's because of something else? That's the other thing that concerns me too. But bottom line is we have to have compassion. These people are feeling sick. Annabelle, what would you say to that person? 
<laughs> I would say I have cancelled my plans to buy the tr- property next door. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, it, I don't know. I don't know what I would say to that person. I think this is a completely diabolical human natural problem that is exacerbated by the technological environment in which we now find ourselves. The natural tendency of people to get together um, and, I mean, read The Crucible. It's the best possible, you know, um, demonstration of this. The capacity for people to get together in small groups and reinforce each other's irrationalities is an ancient, ancient pattern. It's only really gone viral since it was able to, you know, um, through the internet. And so um, I guess it's a diabolical problem. It really is. And I don't know what I would say to that person beyond I'm really sorry to hear that you're feeling awful. That would be the first thing that I would say because, you know, you have to remember wherever you're dealing with anybody or millions of people at once that each of those people, I mean, even the people that, you know, routinely described as the deniers. Now, they all feel like a group of people who are routinely talked down to by, you know, scientists. right? Yeah, sure, okay. So, and every time, you know, um, every time a group of people is ritually referred to as the denialists, it broadens that gap just as surely as referring to scientists as elites does. It's reductionist and it's kind of, I think, probably makes a um, contribution to making people who are tending that way feel more firmly in that camp. People in general who deny climate change or whatever don't understand the process of science and whether people, more people need to understand. And it's not just science, it's any sort of academic research, I guess, peer reviews and things like that. May I answer so that? As opposed to an opinion. Sure. I'll um, then toss it to uh, Tanya. Uh, the big crit that comes from a denial side, if you like, is that uh, there's a consensus in science. Now, some people look at peer review and the consensus as some kind of echo chamber or conspiracy of the elite. What you should think of instead, and I broadcast something to do with Paul Willis, who's the director of the RIOs just here in Adelaide, and that is consilience. So if you'd imagine that there is a murder and everyone thinks the butler did it and you go into the room and you look for 20 different sources of evidence, not one, but all sorts of different ones, the splash of blood on the walls, the knife, the personality of the butler, maybe there's some other weapon there somewhere, maybe there's a history, and you put all these separate pieces of evidence together about the movement of animals, about the physics of the sky, about the history of CO2, any number of things, and they all eventually, if the science is right, point in the same direction. So it is not a plebiscite where all these scientists back each other up because they're good chaps together, but there is a test from across the board. Tanya, would you agree or not? Yeah. Yeah. That That was the shortest answer I've given, I think. Um, the other thing that I think, you, I mean, you're right, people don't understand the process of science and the language of science. And I think one thing that I found when I was working on Catalyst, I was so used to the uncertainty that everyone's comfortable with in science circles that I would say to my husband, I might make myself a cup of coffee when I was literally boiling the kettle and pouring it out. You know, I would never say I will make a cup, I might make it. Very comfortable with uncertainty. Some scientists are starting to use stronger language, but 
I think that there's this... Um, what I'm trying to do in some of my communication is, is separate the already happened to the predicted and remind people that the already happened was once predicted as well. Um, has anyone played that game called Mastermind where you have these little coloured pegs and it's covered and then you... Yeah, that is how I've described to my kids what science is. This is how science works, is that that coloured row of pegs, you've got the solution at the end and it's covered and you don't know what it is. But you put your guess in there and you get feedback in the form of white and black pegs. And based on that feedback, you come up with a new hypothesis and then you test it, you get more feedback. And the thing is, is that first one was the most correct hypothesis at the time. The next one, that one isn't kind of wrong or unhelpful. It led to the forming of the next hypothesis. And then as time goes by, you get better and, and you get hypotheses that match reality better. And the ultimate test is that when you test them, you get more of the pegs coming back as the feedback. So basically, we, we're pretty confident in science when it works. So our predictions for the kind of things we're seeing with climate change, the weather patterns, the extreme weather, are well within what was predicted. The hypotheses have worked. And that's, that's an example that I've tried to show to people to show why, why we're not uncomfortable with something that was predicted in the past being wrong. Because that's, that's how science works. We're constantly evolving, coming up with better understandings of what happens around us, and we test it. Yes, Dr. Spock versus uh, Captain Kirk. Final 30 seconds, what do we have time for, Tori? Well, I'm gonna walk out of here and try and be a bit more compassionate because I have a tendency to write a column and wanna call people dick brains, to be honest. <laughs> and I'm gonna try and be a little bit more understanding about the space that they're coming from in order to breach that gap that Annabelle spoke about. Annabelle Crabb. 30 seconds. And I'm going to buy a property next to a wind farm just to, <laughs> just to express the sincerity of my resolve. Would you please thank Annabel Crabb, Tori Shepherd, and Tanya Ha. Thank you.